try to imagine. You live in a country where the police are used to systematically oppress minorities. There's mass unemployment. Education and medical programs are jokingly bad. There's corruption at the highest levels of government. The president is brazenly getting himself and his friends rich. There are pockets of violence from multiple different factions across the country. Then, to top it off, the election was rigged. What would you do? Take to the streets? Storm the Capitol? And who does this remind you of? Exactly. Which is why I want to talk about Cuba. Good morning and welcome to the Recovery from Politics podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Frame. Today is Wednesday, January 13th, 2021. Uh, Cuba's in the news again. Um, it's pretty quiet. Uh, another one of those stories I think is flying under the radar. Uh, basically, they've been re-added to the state sponsor of terrorism list. Now, when the United States government puts you on this list, it basically shuts down a lot of your economy. Uh, a lot of people aren't allowed to travel there. Certain banks aren't allowed to do business with you there. Um, you're not allowed to travel. If you live in that country, you obviously are not allowed to come here. So hypothetically, if Cubans were allowed to travel freely to America, they would be cut off right now. It just shuts off a lot of avenues for you. And the first thing I was curious about was, does Cuba actually sponsor terrorism? Um, they're not a particularly wealthy country, so it kind of seemed odd to me. It makes more sense when one of those oil-rich Middle Eastern countries does it, right? They, they have the extra money and also the military training uh, to pull that off. Uh, Cuba does have a military, and it was backed by the Soviet Union back in the day, but modern day, I don't think of them as much of a military power. Um, obviously, guerrilla warfare is still a thing. Uh, but one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter. So I was really very curious about this. And it turns out that they were added to the state sponsor of terrorism list by the Justice, or excuse me, not the Justice Department, the State Department. So Mike Pompeo had a hand in this. <clears throat> and it's pretty lame uh, that they're not actually sponsoring terrorism. Uh, the State Department is relying solely on two things. One, the State Department has labeled Venezuela as a state sponsor of terrorism. Therefore, when Cuba sent them medical aid for the COVID crisis, that was counted as aiding the terrorists. I think that's kind of weak. Uh, so what else is there? And apparently Colombia and Cuba have a beef because Cuba is harboring refugees who Colombia says are terrorists. And Cuba says, no, they're, they're freedom fighters. They're just rebels. Um, which it gets to the whole dicey, you know, what is and isn't a terrorist. And normally I consider a terrorist somebody who wants to create terror. You know, their, their targets aren't military. They're indiscriminate. They're just killing people for the sake of 
intimidation and you know trying to just scare you into doing something stupid <clears throat> you know terrorism is 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 what you do when you don't know how to do real rebellion okay you, you don't have tanks you don't have missiles uh you know most of these bombs they come up with is stuff you have in your kitchen kind of a deal it's 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 made at the lowest levels you know terrorism doesn't really seem all that organized i know it appears so uh but over here in the western states especially or the western world uh, terrorism's it's it's very loose linked to anything real so anyway this this new claim that all of a sudden cuba is a state sponsor of terrorism is tenuous at best and so you have to ask yourself why why would they do this? Um, and there's really just a handful of reasons. One, you could believe that this is President Trump being petty and anything with Obama's name on it must be stricken from the record. And one of President Obama's uh, main foreign policy achievements, I thought, was normalizing relations with Cuba. Uh, he basically said, hey, everyone, let's look at history. It's been over 50 years. Uh, communism isn't going anywhere. You know, uh, Cuba is perfectly fine doing what they're doing. This is ridiculous. They're right off our border. We should normalize relations and maybe we can, you know, do something about this, especially given the fact that we clearly don't care about communism nearly as much as we used to. I mean, we trade with China. China is our number one trading partner. They're communist. So it's not the communism that bothers us. If, if Cuba has something we want you know, opening trade would be the easiest way to get it. So President Obama basically said, okay, this is, this is clearly not working. You know, we've tried sanctions, we've tried embargoes, we've, we've tried everything under the sun. It's, it's just not working. So he was like, let's turn the page and try something different. Let's try engagement, right? But of course, you know, Trump immediately came in and, and reversed that. Now, there are other options. Uh, the other is my own personal belief that uh, the Republican Party has banked their entire future in the state of Florida on relations with Cuba. And they believe that the Cuban-American refugees want nothing more than to see the Castros punished and communism defeated in Cuba so they can go home. Therefore, any kind of concession or sign of peace with Cuba is bad for them. So you have guys like Marco Rubio who are just defiantly anti-Cuban no matter what. <clears throat> and he speaks from a position of authority specifically because he is Cuban-American. Um, this used to guarantee the Republican Party an eight-year presidency. Somebody like Marco Rubio was seen as the future of the party. I mean, he's a Cuban-American from Florida. That's that that used to guarantee eight years in the White House right there. Just easy, like has nothing to do with the fact that he's spineless and not very smart. Doesn't matter. Uh, he he would have won elections. Uh, that was all pre-Trump. Uh, now that Trump's here, obviously, you can win Florida and still lose the election by record numbers. So maybe this is the time. Now, my own personal theory is that. If we were to completely normalize relations with Cuba, open up the border, start trading with them, allow people to go see their families and everything else, I tend to believe that the reunification of families 
would melt the hearts of some of these hardline anti-Castro regime people where, you know, they'll still hate Castro. But it'd be like, man, I really hate Castro. I don't like communism, but damn it, I, I get to see my grandmother again, you know? And I tend to think that the long game politically should be that. And also, I think it's the right thing to do. Uh, reunification of families is the best way to go. Uh, what we're currently doing to Cuba is just destroying their economy for the sake of destroying it. There doesn't really seem to be a reason other than, you know, uh, the people in Miami really hate Cuba. And we got to win Florida. <clears throat> so, you know, if I was a advisor to pres incoming president-elect... Uh, Joe Biden, I would advise him to just, you know what, blow it all up, remove all sanctions, open up the gates, do everything you can, just just get it open, tear off the Band-Aid. And if the anti-Castro Cubans in Miami don't like it, well, guess what? You're not winning them anyway. You're a Democrat. You're never going to win Florida, uh, at least not from that particular block of people. So, you know, you might as well do it. It's the right thing to do. But that's me. Uh, I don't. I don't believe sanctions for the sake of regime change. You know, everybody wants to be the the president who ends the Castros. Well, unfortunately, the Castros have outlived most of our presidents. So, you know, if anybody's got staying power, it's them. But that made me really think about Cuba in general. You know, and I realized I don't know much about it pre-Castro. <clears throat> you know, what was what was Cuba really like? I mean, why did they willingly go to communism? And this guy, Fidel Castro, who, according to my wonderful American education system, tells me he's one of the worst people on the planet. So not only did they accept communism and they accepted someone like Fidel Castro, why would they keep him then? I mean, you just had a revolution. Things aren't working out. Why not have another? So I want to deep dive into that and really get into the history. And there's a ton of history involving Cuba. I am focusing significantly and primarily on the history of Cuba in relation to the United States. And, and try to dredge up where this history comes from, because it's, it's really strange that it took over 50 years before a president came in and said, hey, this hate Cuba for the sake of hating Cuba thing isn't working. Let's try something different. And it seems to me like, you know, we haven't had stupid presidents. Why didn't anybody else try this? You know, where... Where's this hard line in the State Department and all of our diplomats come from with Cuba? And it turns out we have had our fingers in their pie since 1902. I mean, technically, we've had it since before then, but, but 1902 is when it became official. Before 1902... <clears throat> there was the Spanish colonization and Spain basically had control of the island 
up until 1898, and that's when the Cubans started their first revolution. Uh, and with American backing, succeeded. So all of a sudden you've got the United States and Cuba sitting there. Okay, cool. And the Cubans were like, we love America right now, so we're going to do what America says, and we're going to we're going we're gonna to try out democracy. And Americans at the time had Marines in the country. So things didn't turn out too well. There's this wonderful uh, piece of legislation known as the Platt Amendment. Platt with two T's. So basically, you had a bunch of white dudes in Congress in the early 1900s who looked at this Cuban country and said, wow, they are, that's a lot of Hispanics and a lot of Hispanic Africans. You know, obviously Spain imported a ton of slaves from Africa to Cuba, and they have since commingled with the populace. They're every bit as Cuban as anyone else on the island, but unfortunately uh, they have a different color skin, and we're talking about 1900 America, so the elites had this deep mistrust of the Cuban people, Cuban people to self-govern. They didn't believe it was possible. So the Platt Amendment was supposed to take control of Cuba, but not make Cuba a state. See, that was another problem. See, there were people like uh, Theodore Roosevelt and others who thought, hey, you know what? Well, you should just make Cuba a state. You know, we'll, we'll make them a state. They're right off. They're only 50 miles off the border. It's it's ridiculous. You know, why not? And there were a lot of people who disagreed with that, and it was primarily from racism. They didn't want to invite in an entire state where the majority of the people were people of color. That was just a horrible idea. So what do you do? Well, you make them a territory, but you don't make them a state. But we need rules because America does want to control Cuba. Cuba has sugar, and we have a sweet tooth, especially back in 1900. So they have something we want. We clearly want it, but we don't want to go all the way with it. This is kind of similar to what we ended up doing with Puerto Rico and that BS. But with Cuba, it was especially weird. So this Platt Amendment had seven conditions that the government of Cuba must adhere to in order to remain a puppet state of America. And at first, the politicians and the leaders down in Cuba were like, this is crazy because it Cuba wasn't allowed to trade with anyone other than the United States. Cuba couldn't sign treaties with anyone other than the United States. Cuba couldn't do anything with anyone other than the United States without the United States approval and agreement. This forced Cuba into a relationship where they had to deal with the United States. And unfortunately, the United States at this point in time was, was the power in the region. Um, they weren't a world power yet. That would come after World War One. World War One had not occurred yet. Uh, but in the early 1900s, they had a, they still had a, a significant naval force, and they did have Marines on the island. And it was implied that you know if if Cuba doesn't adhere 
to this plat amendment deal will just take over officially. We'll just end the democracy part of it. We'll just install whoever we want. So the Cubans made a bargain with the devil and they went ahead and agreed to this Platt Amendment. Um, so the United States could now unilaterally intervene in all Cuban affairs and the Cuban government was forced to lease land to the United States for military bases. This was uh, most notable for Guantanamo Bay. This is how that happened. So it also forced land leases for coaling and sugar by the United States. So the United States took over their economy. So let's see. The United States has farms and we farm almost anything, soybeans, corn, a plethora, wheat, everything, right? Most countries are that way. They don't just grow one thing. Usually when they do end up growing one thing, it's because the country that considers themselves their boss forced them to. Think of the Irish and the potato blight. That was specifically because Britain told Ireland, you will grow nothing but potatoes, which was great for Britain. Uh, and it did feed Ireland. The problem was uh, once you got the potato blight, all of a sudden Ireland sits there saying, hey, we have no food. Our economy's destroyed because we consolidated everything. And this was okay with the times. Um, old school politics was very much, oh, the poor people that we look down on can't do it themselves, so we'll do it for them. And hey, potatoes are popular. Why don't they just grow potatoes and not think of you know, biodiversity or any of that just wasn't a part of their thinking back then. So we basically forced Cuba to, you know, radically change its entire crop status to nothing but sugar, which meant, yes, America would get a lot of sugar. It also meant that the United States was exporting everything else to Cuba. It made Cubans dependent on American trade. Uh, this is another thing. So you're dependent on America for military for the economy and you're hoping to they will let you have some you know democracy and another poison pill this plat amendment puts into effect and we have a bad tendency of putting this particular bit of thing a uh, bit of history into any country we don't really want to succeed too much. And basically the Platt Amendment forbade Cuba from taking on any debt. We've recently done this to Puerto Rico, which is why Puerto Rico is in such a bad place financially. They're in debt up to their eyeballs, but they're not allowed to have any and by law they have to pay off their lenders they can't just tell their lenders sorry our people are starving we're going to take care of them first and we'll pay you when we have cash they can't do that by law they have to pay and this is something we kind of do to unfortunately uh territories that we control that don't have majority white people kind of sucks and lastly the amendment denies the right to vote by women 
or the Afro-Cubans. So it, it's basically we exported Jim Crow to Cuba. And the Cubans had to accept this. Which is nuts. But this whole thing, this whole Platt Amendment is severely insane. And, you know, through the modern lens, you're wondering why on earth would anyone accept this? And again, you have to consider they're only 50 miles away. Their military is already on your island. They're not leaving. Think of the Iron Curtain after World War II. The Soviet Union was a power. And both the Soviet Union and the United States knew that at this point in time in history, communism and democracy could not live peacefully together, especially with the people you had in charge. I mean, Stalin, not exactly a guy known for arguing in good faith. So they pulled back their forces. They kept East Germany, and they also kept the Eastern Bloc states, uh, Poland and such. They left their tanks there and they said, okay, now everybody's going to vote on what they want. Do they want democracy or communism? And when you have a Soviet tank and you're seeing that red flag with the, you know, sickle and the raised fist and everything, uh, it makes it very difficult. It intimidates people. Some people didn't vote at all, or the people who did vote kept an eye on where the guns were pointed and they voted for communism. And I have to imagine that's pretty much the same thing that happened here with the Cubans. Uh, in this case, it wasn't really the people. It was the politicians who were like, uh, were not strong enough to fight the United States. The United States is clearly here. I guess we have to accept their terms. So enter in the Estrada Palma presidency. Uh, December 31st, 1901 to September 28th, 1906. He got the Cubans to agree to the Platt Amendment. And he actually wasn't a bad negotiator um, because consider the Cubans did not want this amendment at all. Uh, but also he negotiated with the Americans down to two bases instead of five. Ultimately, the two bases became one. Uh, the United States wanted to expand Guantanamo Bay to make it larger and Cuba's counteroffer was, okay, but you have to close that other base, thus Guantanamo. Uh, so not bad for him considering, you know, the United States did not have to accept that deal. The United States could have easily told them, no, we're having five bases and you're just going to suck it up. Um, so this guy's, hey, he's, he's got some bona fides when it comes to diplomacy. Unfortunately, the pro-segregation regulations enforced by the United States uh, caused a lot of problems. Um, I mean, with American backing, Palma won re-election, but surprise, rumors of election fraud circulated wildly, culminating in Palma using the military and police to claim victory. Sound familiar? Yeah. 
So right away, you have the first president in this new democracy, and he wins re-election under a cloud of scandal because apparently election fraud. Great. And his response to this was to use the police and military to basically force his way back into the presidency. I guess, luckily, you could say Theodore Roosevelt was president at the time of the United States, and when Palma found out, Roosevelt was not pleased with this decision and would not back a military-backed presidency like that. Uh, Palma decided the easiest method out was to just resign. So he did. And then we have September 1906 to February 1909. Uh, Theodore Roosevelt, obviously, the first election that they had there was a failure, and they weren't just going to hand it over to the guy who lost, because that's odd. But you did have pockets of violence in the country and everything else, and they went ahead and used the Platt Amendment to send in what is known as the second occupation of Cuba. Uh, Theodore Roosevelt ordered military forces in to keep Cuban violence down. They were worried about Cuba, uh, Cuban civil war at this point uh, to protect America's economic interests and to hold elections. And again, this lasted for about two and a half years. So then they finally have another election. And Jose, oh, excuse me, Jose Miguel Gomez becomes president. And he almost seems pretty benign. He doesn't really do much. The one thing that he does do is he begins government sponsorship of newspapers. So think NPR, but Cuba. Uh, the only downside to this was that they tended to be very pro-government. So whoever was president, basically the newspapers all supported them. And I mean, that, there's no direct link between President Gomez forcing the newspapers to print what he wanted them to. It could have just easily been, hey, uh, don't write anything bad about Gomez because he writes the checks. I mean, when he's your biggest sponsor, you don't want to piss him off. So other than that, though, I mean, the guy really didn't do much as president. Uh, he was in for four years, and that was pretty much it. We'll take a break here and get back to it after. So after the Gomez presidency, we get a new guy, Mario Garcia Menical. Pro-business, pro-corporation. Uh, but 1916, his re-election ended up being challenged. Once again, everybody was thinking corruption and the election was rigged. And you have to keep in mind that the first time this happened was in 1906. So their first rigged election supposedly was 1906. Their second rigged election was 1916. So only 10 years apart from each other. And all of a sudden you have this. Only this time at least it didn't devolve into a civil war or another occupation. And that was primarily because World War I was going on. And this new guy, Mario Garcia Menocal, he basically got Cuba into World War I the day after the United States declared into it. When you go to war, it has this unifying effect inside the country. A lot of people thought, okay, fine, but this is a big deal. This was the Great War, right? 
so everybody laid down their arms and said, okay, we'll, we'll fight this battle again next time. So World War One happens. Uh, other than that, this guy, yeah, he really didn't do much either. Uh, he did create Cuba's own currency. Uh, so prior to this guy, uh, Medi-Cal, uh, Cuba had been using Spanish and the United States currency. Uh, they actually created Cuba's, the Cuban peso, uh, basically. Um, so, I mean, okay, that's that's all you got. And then in 1921 and 1925, you get another president, Alfredo Zayas. And he's a bit different. Um, a lot of people like him. He's uh, very reform-minded. He begins the process to give women the right to vote. Uh, negotiated sovereignty of Cuban lands held by the United States. There was a there was a chunk of land that the United States had been kind of sitting on. Uh, it wasn't United States territory. We weren't claiming it. We were just saying Cuba can't have it because it was under dispute. Um, so Zayas went ahead and negotiated. No, give us back our thing. So that was cool. And another thing he did was he removed the uh, expression of the press uh that was limited at the time he removed that he said you know uh i want freedom of expression by the press i want them to be able to write whatever the hell they want uh obviously very good and launched uh, the first cuban radio station so this guy was definitely forward thinking but he was beaten in 1925 by geraldo machado this guy was a piece of work so he came in at the right time. Uh, 1925 was a very prosperous time for Cuba. Sugar prices were up, um, even though they were still pretty much under the thumb of the United States. You know, things were, things were good. Things were good. Uh, there was plenty of prosperity, and he had big ideas. I mean, he wanted to rival the Western world when it came to infrastructure. He was huge on it. Highways, a new capital. Uh, he brought in people from the United States who helped design their highways and capital. And he's like, I want our capital to look like Washington, D.C. I mean, he was he was a big, big thinker and everything was on the up and up. And of course, uh, like everyone back then, everyone thinks the gravy train is never going to stop. So he borrowed heavily from the United States, in this case, Chase Bank, something like eighty seven million dollars, which, again, we're talking about 1925 money and a small country like Cuba. But, but this, despite all these accomplishments, he became quite authoritarian. He tried to modify the Constitution to remain in power. He shut down newspapers and arrested editors for publishing anything negative about him or his administration. And unfortunately, this all started to happen right around the same time sugar prices started plummeting which again was Cuba's only real commodity. So in essence, Cuba was headed for a Great Depression even before the Great Depression. So the Great Depression just made things worse. It was kind of like, a, you know, the Great Depression was bad, but the Dust Bowl made it worse. That's basically what Cuba was going through. Uh, they had no economy before the economy crashed very bad situation to be in so great depression occurs uh university students start protesting him as university students are want to do 
So his response was just to shut down the university. <laughs> so we just shut down the whole university. Um, and then all of a sudden, in a very uh, modern-day Putin-esque style, all of a sudden his critics and political opponents start dying uh, mysteriously from gunshot wounds to the back of the head type stuff. It's, it's very strange that the police and army... Uh, had this weird habit of, you know, stopping somebody because they look suspicious and they end up being murdered. So uh, he, while he had big ideas, he was a really, really, really bad guy. And obviously that gave rise to opposing factions. And you had a lot of different people suddenly attacking the government because the government's obviously corrupt. This guy just changed the constitution so he could remain in power forever. This is horrible. And he's shutting down dissent and he's killing opposition. I mean, this is, this is really bad stuff. And it's amazing that the first I heard of him was when I started researching this stuff, you know, he's, a, he's high on the list of really bad dudes. The world has produced overall and nobody knows him because it all happened in the 1920s and thirties. And obviously a lot happened since then. So the United, States, the United States ambassador to Cuba tries to negotiate a truce. He goes to the opposing factions, he goes to the president, and the original deal was, okay, dude, here's what's going to happen. The vice president's going to take control. You're going to go on vacation, and you're just not going to run anything. So this removes him from power without him leaving power, and... Apparently, the opposition was in favor of this. They're like, yeah, cool. We just want this dude gone, right? And the vice president's sole job would be to have new elections and get Machado the hell out of there. Well, Machado didn't want to leave. And he kind of liked things the way they were, so he refused to back down. And this, of course, pissed off the opposition factions, and they chased him the hell out of the country. And Machado ended up fleeing to Miami. Seems to be a pattern there with... Cubans fleeing to Miami. That might have been the start of it. But the amazing thing, he ends up dying there. Not right away, of course. He dies of old age. But uh, yeah, he never goes back to his home country. Eh. Even though he's a bad dude, that, that kind of sucks. You know, you would hope for that, I guess. Um, one of the few things, if you wanted to. So... The United States basically offers the presidency to somebody new. I am going to murder this name, and I am very sorry <laughs> to anybody there. I think it's Cespedes y Quesada. I definitely got the Quesada part. The first part, Cespedes. I, I don't know. C-E-S-P-E-D-E-S. I am so sorry for murdering that. But anyway, there was no election. He was appointed by the United States uh, and charged with... And this is this is a joke, really. Uh, your job is to resolve conflict <laughs> and hold elections <laughs> as planned for 1934. So he gets installed in September 1933, or excuse me, August 1933. And his sole job is, look, there were going to be elections in 1934 anyway. Your job is to make sure they happen, and then you get the hell out. Uh, but I just find it really funny when your job is to resolve conflict. I'm like, um, that easier said than done. And 
he really did try. Uh, he repealed all of Machado's constitutional reforms. He expelled Congress and the Supreme Court because he felt that they were all corrupt too. And basically the, the election that year wasn't just going to replace the presidents. He was going to replace everybody. So it was brand new, fresh, clean slate. And he thought that would fix everything. Unfortunately, the army wasn't really behind him for that. The Cuban army. And we had what was called the Sergeant's Revolt, which was another Cuban revolution in 1933. We're going to stop it there because there's still a ton left. I haven't even gotten to Castro yet. I mean, there's, there's just an insane amount of stuff going on. But the reason I bring up Cuba is, you know, I was, I was doing this research because first I saw the story about the, the Trump administration putting Cuba back on the terror list. And I thought that whole story was a load of bull. And it really is. I'm sorry. I don't even care if it is Iran and they are a state sponsor of terror. It's like if you're sending them COVID medical supplies, you're not supporting terrorism. Okay. That, that is humanitarian aid. And I don't, I, I, I just refuse to see that as a negative or anything you should be punished for. Um, that, that's just me. But regardless, I saw this about Cuba and I wanted to get into it. And the more I saw this history, I was like, wow, you know, every time they have an election, somebody claims fraud. And every time the economy is down, they have, an they have a revolution. And somebody's always lying about something. And this, this seemed very relevant to me today. Um, I woke up last night thinking... You know, that, that's that's the hook. That's that's the news, is that Cuba sounds an awful lot like us right now, historically. Unemployment, oppression, the education, medical systems are complete jokes, corruption at the highest levels of government, and the president is making himself rich off of it. And, oh, by the way, he's claiming mass election fraud because he lost. The only thing we don't have in common with Cuba right now is that it's usually the losers who are claiming election fraud. Cuba has never had a president who lost and claimed election fraud. Someone in office never did that. So that's the difference. Because given their history with certain individuals, especially this Machado individual, you'd have to wonder if he lost an election and then claimed fraud, he probably would not have gone away quietly. <clears throat> That's a bullet they got to dodge. But it just seemed really relevant. And, and I like seeing parallels in history because it lets you know what the possibilities are. Um, I tend to think there isn't much new when it comes to history. It may be new for the region, like the storming of the capital last week was new for all of us, but it wasn't new for somewhere like Cuba. Cuba's gone through this. And what it shows to me is that when you have a pattern, election fraud, election fraud, election fraud, what you really need, what it really seems to be the catalyst for the ultimate change, the official revolution to occur, is the economy. 
when the economy collapses and you have people out of work and they've got nothing else to do and maybe they're starving and then you add oh and by the way that last election there was fraud there that seems to be what does it it's uh it's one of the classic well used to be a classic rule in uh, american politics was it's about the jobs you know as long as people are working they're happy they don't have time to protest they don't have time to argue the government can pretty much do whatever it wants i mean in very prosperous times for the united states uh foreign policy wise uh in the courts so uh, we were we were performing all kinds of horrible actions and nobody cared because we were all working everybody was making money so who cares that seems to be what goes on even in third world countries as long as everyone's working your leader can get away with a lot second that economy takes a downturn that's when things start to become a problem so the best buffer against this is to make sure that there is no corruption in government that it's prosecuted to the highest extent that it can be to prevent that from occurring because you can have historically you can have corruption you can have a bad economy it's when you have both that things turn bad real quick i tend to think you can't do much about the economy sure you can put in regulations and i wish they would do a lot of regulations but even right now uh, aside from just giving everybody money there's really not much you can do about the economy right now with COVID. that i mean it was foreseen for people who study diseases and know hey man the next big one's coming but that's the same thing as saying you know if you live in southern california hey man the next big 8.0 earthquake's coming uh, of course it is we know it is that's a fact you can't bend your whole life waiting for that unpredictable yet totally foreseeable event so were there people who saw COVID coming sure there were a lot of people who said hey you know if we get a good disease going we could really all be in it real quick obviously this was not a state secret <laughs> But you can't control corruption and we we got to start doing it anyway uh that is today's episode on cuba i do plan more because like i said we've only gotten to the first cuban revolution the sergeant's revolt in 1933 and of course this is the first since the united states really got interested a lot of interesting stuff happens this is going to be the setup for what inevitably becomes the communist party in cuba and all the wonderful events you saw in the movie godfather part two because apparently in hollywood cinema nobody likes talking about cuban revolutions much because honestly i'm looking at this and all the people involved and everything and i'm sitting here going you know if i'm a television executive i'm making a show about cuba I mean, we've already seen that these kind of historical dramas can work. I mean, shows like The Queen are doing very well. And I'm just like, man, if somebody did the same thing with Cuba, they could really have a lot to go off of. There's just a ton of material here, a lot of history going on. But again, we're going to deep dive into what causes people 
to revolt, you know, and what causes people to accept something that maybe they don't quite understand, like communism, and accept a man that is maybe not all that great, Fidel Castro. And again, the parallels are striking. In the meantime, I'll see you guys tomorrow. Be safe.